Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Good. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. As we continue our study of God's great deliverance of his people out of the land of slavery and into the promised land of his rest. We're going to begin this morning at the very end of chapter 6. If you have one of our Exodus journals, that's going to be on page 29 and 30 this morning. And we are going to dive right in and then pray together. So if you're physically able in honor of the reading of God's word, go ahead and stand with me. And we will begin in Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your holy word. We ask that you would come and, uh, as I said with brothers before the gathering, that you would give us grace to listen to this word like it's the last that we will ever hear from you. Help me to preach it like it's the last that I'll ever preach. And would you come and anoint both the preaching and the hearing of your word so that we might receive it with faith and uh, with a heart to honor you and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we heard from David last week this message on a genealogy, which I told David afterwards, I think was the best message on a genealogical text that I've ever heard. 
And, um, and it was so helpful to see these signposts to the covenant faithfulness of God, looking back in the present, looking ahead. Uh, but it really is kind of an insertion into the narrative. If we pick up at the end of chapter uh, 6 in verse 28 and 29, it's kind of recapping what he had already just said. So Moses' excuse is feeling tired at this point. And we, we keep seeing the same thing happen where God is telling him, this is what I want you to say. I am the Lord over Egypt. And Moses is like, God, I can't do it. And so we are a little weary of Moses offering excuses. And um, in the, the genealogy almost, if we didn't hear last week of the purpose of it, it can almost seem like this random insertion into this narrative that's picking up right afterwards. But it was important for Moses to connect specifically him and Aaron to the covenant people of God and the promises that God had given to Abraham to bring his people into the promised land. And Egypt was not it. And so there's even a focus in the genealogy on Aaron's line because Aaron's going to play a significant role in the Exodus and in the time following. And we haven't been exposed to Aaron much before this moment in chapter 6. But what I want to focus on this morning with you um, in this beginning portion of chapter 7, which really serves as almost a precursor to the showdown between God and the gods of Egypt or between Moses and Pharaoh. It's, um, it's a trailer, if you will, for the whole show. And the focus on this text and on all the Exodus is God's own passion for his glory that Israel and Egypt both would know that he is the Lord. So that's the language. We've seen it all throughout Exodus so far, but you see it in chapter 6, verse 29, and again in chapter 7, verse 5, where he emphasizes, Pharaoh will know that I am the Lord. Egypt will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know. And so we need to understand as Christians going into this text, as it flavors all that we read, is that this is God's reason for doing all that he does, is his commitment to his own glory. And if you come to prize God's glory as it should be prized, so when we're talking about God's glory, we're talking about his majesty, his worth, his beauty, his honor, the weightiness and the holiness of God as completely over and above all that he has made, when, when we talk about God being committed to his glory, it is the best possible news for you. He is not going to replace his passion for his glory with a commitment to anything else. And that is salvation to you. If you come to prize knowing God and honoring God with your life as you ought, then God's commitment to his own glory will be precious to you. If God is the only one who could be committed to himself without it being arrogance on his part. He is committed to honoring and exalting what is truly valuable and best, just like we ought to be. But what is truly valuable and best is him being honored and exalted and treasured and enjoyed as God by his people. And if you have God's same passion for his glory and you know that he does all that he does and allows all that he allows in your life, 
for the sake of his great name so that in the end you will come to know and treasure and love and worship him as he ought to be loved and treasured and worshiped, then that will be a great anchor for your life. That you can rest in knowing, God, I don't understand this. God, I don't know what you're doing right now. It feels like you're taking too long. God, I'm above uncircumcised lips and I don't want to go do this thing. But if you know that all that God does and all that he commissions is for the sake of his great name and that becomes precious to you, then it will be an anchor for your life. And so that is what we see in this text. And God is setting up this war with Satan himself and Pharaoh. And it's not like there's going to be this great battle back and forth. That's what it, it can seem like in the narrative, like Pharaoh's holding on tight and God just like can't seem to convince Pharaoh to let him go. But it's very clear if you read the narrative that God is the one hardening Pharaoh's heart and he's doing it for a reason. And so just so you have the cliff notes or the cheat notes all through from the beginning, if there's ever why is God doing it this way, then you need to know it is because God has a passion for his glory so that you could see and witness in truth his majesty and his greatness. And so he does things in the best possible way for you to know him and for you to worship him rightly. So I've titled this message, God Will Be Glorified. And we'll see a few ways this morning that God works to put his glory on display. And Lord willing, we can follow Moses and Aaron's example. Finally, hadn't been a lot to follow of his example yet, but we will now as we look at God triumphing over the enemy and acting for his glory, both in Egypt and today. So first, I want to see with you that God is glorified in his use of weak but redeemed people. Amen? This one sounds encouraging already, doesn't it? Anybody? God is glorified in his use of weak but redeemed people. Now, this beginning of the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 sounds a little bit like Groundhog Day. I'm not going to lie. When you read through this and you're like, I feel like we've read this same paragraph maybe like six or seven times before already in Exodus. And repetition in God's word is there for a reason. Every word of this sacred text is breathed out by God on purpose. And we need to give heed to all of it. But this first point of God being glorified in his use of weak but redeemed or renewed people comes from these new elements that are introduced into this text that we really haven't seen before or hasn't been emphasized before. And thankfully, in this text this morning, we get a little bit of a foretaste of that activity of God that we've been longing for. We've been with Israel as readers and just from resonating in our own life, they've been longing for the activity of God, longing for the salvation of God, and it has already been, it's always been to this point, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming but it's not yet. And so they're, they're, this whole time they're praying long, God, you haven't done what you said. You didn't deliver us like you promised yet. And he goes before Pharaoh and then it doesn't work out well. And so he's continuing to offer these excuses to God. And we've just been in this cycle. And then all of a sudden in chapter seven, we go, all right, let's go. 
and it's exciting. But first, before we get there, we see God resolving to use weak people. Um, I, I saw this in verse 7, and it's kind of curious why God would choose to include. So we talk about every word being God-breathed and everything's in here on purpose. And so why would God include, in verse 7, now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. That, that seems like a strange insertion so far. It's not just like, hey, because ages are important and we just need to know people's ages. Um, Moses does live to 120 years old. But I, I think sometimes we think, because it's kind of confusing, before the flood people lived like 900 years, so who knows what an 80-year-old looked like before the flood. It may look real good, you know. But by this point, people didn't live super long yet. So you can't just assume, oh, well, Moses and Aaron were 80 and 83, but they probably looked like 40 because in those days people lived super long. Moses wrote in Psalm 90 that the span of our days are 70 years, or by reason of strength, 80. So already by Moses' time, he, he's like on the brink of death in his own words, right? This guy is old. Um, and so if you're 80 in the room, God bless, uh, you're up there. Like it's a demonstration of weakness so that God alone would have the glory. This is not two men in the prime of their life showcasing their strength and their prowess and demanding by their charismatic leadership that Pharaoh bow to them. These are two 80-year-old men coming in and saying, God has said. They are practicing the wisdom of the aged, but it is, in this moment, you could argue if the million people are enslaved, what you need the most is not just a couple of wise men coming in and, and being sages. You need like power, intimidating authority, and what God gives is two men in their 80s to say, I will be glorified in the weakness of my people so that I alone get the glory for the deliverance that happens. D.L. Moody, who pastored just 20 minutes from here, uh, but not 20 minutes ago, uh, said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody, 40 years learning he was a nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Now, Lord willing, it doesn't take you 40 years to learn all of those iterations, but that is what God is doing. He spent 40 years humbling Moses, and now in the midst of much weakness as an 80-year-old man, he's going to be used mightily by God who would use him to showcase his strength. Um, not only do you see Moses' weakness in his age, but also in right up into the brink of being Israel's deliverer, he's still offering excuses to God. So in chapter 6, verse 30, you're like, are you kidding me with the uncircumcised lips thing again? Didn't God already get angry with you for this and then give you your brother to speak for you and you're still offering up excuses to God? And if we get not just outside of the text, but inside of the text, you can see yourself there where God keeps convicting you over the same sins. He, he keeps confronting you over the same things. We keep offering to him the same excuses 
for why we're not good at evangelism, for why we don't love our neighbor, for why we haven't taken that step of obedience and what he's called us to. And God's response to Moses is so gracious. He doesn't give him an out. He doesn't say, okay, well, then you can go. And he doesn't ask him to please consider doing it. He's not, he's not doubling down to just please asking him. He just comes over the top in resolving to use him. Just graciously, lovingly, I'm not listening to your excuses and here's your instructions. And so, and he, he does it gloriously so. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. He says, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. This is, this is right after he says, God, I can't do it. I've got uncircumcised lips. He's like, I'm making you God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now, if you're keeping track, this is now the second time that God has said, I'm making you like God to someone, to Moses. In chapter 4, verse 16 he said, I will make you like God to Aaron, and Aaron will be your prophet. Now he's saying, this is the kind of the new twist in the narrative that we're seeing this morning, I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh. But what is so amazing and important for us today is that in the Hebrew text, the word like or as is not there. He just says, I'm going to make you God to Pharaoh which packs a whole force. I mean, the, the text that we read gets at the same poise, place, but the, the point is the emphasis on him functionally being God in the flesh to Pharaoh as functioning with the authority of God under the authority of God. And in this way, Moses truly recovers or partially recovers this true humanity that we were always meant to live with. It's what Adam enjoyed in the garden where he lived as an extension of God and his rule without being divine, but living under the authority of God, with the authority of God, and perfectly imaging God to the world around him so that the world could look at Adam and see God through him. And when Adam and Eve sinned, that image of God was marred so that now it was not a clear picture of God. So it is significant when God looks at Moses and he says, you will be God to Pharaoh, particularly because Pharaoh believed that he himself was God under the power and the authority of Satan and all the gods of Egypt. And so here you have two men who literally function like a face-off of gods in the flesh. Here is going to be a standoff between the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel, and you will be like God to him. You'll even have a mouthpiece. So Pharaoh had people that spoke to him. So you just imagine Pharaoh and Moses standing on opposite sides of each other. One's representing the one true God. One believes himself to be God, empowered by all these demonic forces. And they both have people speaking for them because the gods don't speak for themselves to normal people. They have people speaking for them. So Pharaoh has people speaking for him, and then Aaron comes, and he's telling him what Moses is saying. And Moses to Pharaoh represents God, the image of God to Pharaoh. So hang on to that. So we see that God is glorified in his 
use of weak but renewed people. As he renews people in his image, he is glorified in using them in the midst of their weakness. We also see that God is glorified in his people, proclaiming and obeying all that he commands. In proclaiming and obeying all that he commands. We don't get to spend long here because we need to work through the rest of the narrative. But to this point, Moses has taken things into his own hands. He has lived in exile. He's offered excuses. He's complained to God about his insufficiency or about God's timing. And then he's offered more excuses, even in the midst of initial obedience. And now, two times in this text, we have in verse 6 and in verse 10, that Moses and Aaron obeyed and did just as the Lord commanded them. You, you need to see this powerful transformation in Moses, too, in the midst of God working his wonders. And it ties back into what we were saying with him working in Moses in the midst of his excuses and working in you in the midst of your excuses and disobedience. That our stories, along with Moses's, are full of character development where we're being further conformed into the image of Christ. And we go from making excuses and disobeying and dragging our feet to doing just as the Lord commanded us. And this is particularly powerful when you consider that this is the leader of the known world. He himself believes himself and likely is endowed with demonic power. He thinks he's a god. He's already refused to give heed to your commands. He's, at last time you talked to him, he doubled down in abusing and oppressing your people. Things have not gone well. He's doing this in the face of fear. Anybody? He's doing this in the face of not seeing results yet, of, of doing this before but not seeing any results, and in the midst of much opposition. But in the midst of all those things, all those things that you can resonate with your life as you seek to exalt Jesus in your world and you're full of excuses or in the past disobedience or in the past you haven't seen what you wanted to see, in the midst of all of that, there is God's commitment to transforming his son so that he would become obedient and then do just as the Lord commanded. And God is glorified in that. He is glorified in taking these weak but renewed people and forming his heart and his character into them and so that they go from making excuses to standing before the most intimidating, the most fear-inducing power in the world and saying, this is what the one God has said and doing just as he commanded them to do. And, and so third and last and, and longest from the rest of the text is God is glorified in his victory over the evil one. And this is so amazing and encouraging and hope-giving. You, you can read this in verse 4 through 5 and then we'll get to the main portion of our text at the end of, the uh, end of our text this morning. God promised Moses, he said, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts. This is, even in that language, is 
God is going to judge Egypt and his people are going to come out by divisions, not scattered like crazy, not disorganized, but in these divisions that are an army marching out. And he says it was going to bring them out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the word is vindication. Pharaoh has exalted himself as God. He's oppressed his people. He's enslaved his son. He said, let my son go or else I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And Pharaoh refuses and he exalts himself in his pride above God and above God's people. And God says, with great acts of vindicating judgment, I'm going to bring my people out. When I stretch my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So there's one thing before we continue on with verse 8. I want you to see this. God's passion for his glory extends not just to those whom he has called to himself and redeemed to be a people for his own possession, but his passion for his glory is seen in his judgment over those who refuse him. So that as the witness goes out, his glory is seen in his power to save and in his power to judge those who refuse him and he will vindicate his glory in the eyes of all the earth. And so we pick up in verse 8. So chapter 7, verse 8. I'll reread this account for you. And I want you to see here this, in this text, a kind of microcosm of the war to come. This is a really a preview of the plagues. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Now just note when Pharaoh is asking for a sign, Jesus said it's it's a wicked generation that is asking for a sign, right? There's, the sign that Pharaoh needed was Moses coming and declaring, this is what the one God has said. And you know that Pharaoh wasn't asking for a sign so that when he saw a convincing sign, he would repent and believe. But uh, a carnal or unbelieving mind always insists for a sign, but is blinded to the signs that God has given them all around and will not believe apart from God opening their eyes to receive him. So you can think that, but I've, I've heard believers be tended to say, I don't see how they, can, they can't see this. I don't understand how they cannot believe. I articulated the gospel so well, or this was so plain, this was so evident. But what God's word says is, God's invisible attributes, his divine power has been plainly seen through everything that he's been made, all creations accountable to know that he is there and that they belong to him and that they ought to worship him. And so everyone who does not bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ is rejecting what God has plainly revealed to them. And so we, we continue. He says, I want the sign. God says, you should take this staff of Aaron's and cast it down. It'll become a serpent. So Moses and Pharaoh go and do this thing before them. And God is setting up this conflict to display his glory over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt. You can look in different parts of God's word where we look back on this moment. And it kind of adds commentary on what is actually happening here. So in chapter 12, verse 12, God says, On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
So this is not just a battle between Moses and Pharaoh or between God and Pharaoh, but the one God against all the false gods and counterfeit gods that Egypt had replaced the one true God with. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So God is acting with jealousy for his namesake. It is not just that Israel belonged to God and that they ought to give him their worship, but by virtue of being the creator God, to whom belongs all worship and all glory, God deserved and demanded the, the worship of the Egyptians. And their worship of other gods was not just them having a different culture. It wasn't just them not knowing about God. It was a rejection of God and a hatred of the one true God. And God's saying, I will not allow my glory to go to false gods. And so I just... To, to prove that out, I want you to see that like, I'm not just making this up about Pharaoh and Egypt being laden with false gods or actually being under the dominion and control of Satan himself. So we know Egypt was mired in idolatry and pride, that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the created rather than the creator. But Paul writes, I'm not going to read the whole text, but you can uh, jot down 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. He says, there's really no such thing as idols. These are just false gods. But there are many so-called gods, many lords, meaning there are many supernatural beings who claim to be God. Demonic forces that exalt themselves as lowercase g gods among the nations. And he says, yet there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Pharaoh and his forces in Egypt existed through Jesus and for Jesus. And instead of worshiping the one who made them for whom they existed, who is passionate for his glory, they rejected him in exchange for these so-called gods who are really demons that claim deity by the power and authority of Satan. So a few examples, they had thousands of gods, one for everything that you can imagine. It was like if they had a problem, they just make up a god for it and then worship it to see if he could fix the problem. And so gods of the harvest, gods, I mean, just picture Greek, Roman pantheon of gods just for every possible day of the week and um, farming need and god of air and god of stars and the sun god, and they all had different powers that they would impart to them. And as we see in this text, it's not like the power wasn't real. A real supernatural power does not mean it is legitimately the power of God. Now, in the West, we live with kind of a, a blindness to demonic activity, and we've said before, there are kind of two ditches. You either look for a demon under every rock and blame everything on a demon so that if you pop your tire on the curb on the way out of here, you go, devil got me. Or we live with a complete ignorance of spiritual warfare and live with a kind of a ceiling 
and not seeing the activity of Satan and the demonic forces at work all around us. So one example is the ancient Egyptians were much afraid and in awe of serpents. And so they worshipped them. There was a goddess. I think I would pronounce her name Wajit, but I'm not positive. (laughs) They built a temple to her in honor of her, the snake goddess. And pharaohs believed that she brought them to the throne and gave them power and protection. That, That she actually came into them and gave them power and protection. I have no doubt that she did. Manuscripts from this time show pharaohs actually offering themselves to, in a quote, the great one, the magician, the great fiery snake, in exchange for, make me terrible like you are terrible, make me fearsome like you are fearsome, um, make me powerful like you are powerful. So literally, the pharaohs would sell their souls to the great fiery snake himself in exchange for being feared and striking terror into the heart of their subjects. They embodied themselves as a snake so that the people who were greatly afraid of snakes would have power and authority by making themselves fearsome and terrible to their subjects. So into that, you've got to see that this is God. So remember, God is after his glory. Here's what's happening in Egypt. Now, that devil-worshipping, snake-like representation was always representation of the enemy himself oppressing the people of God, even though they had this promise that there was a coming offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, and it looked like the serpent was winning. Now, giving commentary on what he did in the Exodus in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, God says this, Has any other God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you may know that the Lord is God and there is no other beside him. So, Remember, God is doing all that he does for the display of his glory. He could have shown up and said, it's over, but he doesn't. He creates a war. He creates a demonstration of his power and his authority over all these different gods of Egypt so that Egypt and Israel might both know that there is one God and his name is the Lord and he is worthy of their fear and their worship. So, In this text, briefly, we see this in two different ways. One, Aaron's staff turns into a snake. So knowing what you know about Pharaoh and about how they worshipped and feared snakes so much, this is awesome, right? He's tossing down his snake, I mean his staff, it turns into a snake, and you can see, just imagine Pharaoh's face with me, right? He sees this all the time. He's like, my guys can do this, right? So he's probably like, They'd probably think I'm impressed by this, right? Or kind of shocked maybe, but also offended because he's the snake, God. So by by using the symbol that Pharaoh identified himself with from that which represented the authority 
of God and the power of God, God is mocking Pharaoh, and he's mocking the great serpent of old who embodied him, saying, I'm going to take this, and here's, you are under my control and my power. I have the right to lay you down, and I have the right to take it back up again. Now, the problem for us, seemingly, is when Pharaoh calls his boys in, and he says, guys, show them, this is not a big deal. Now, these magicians in Egypt were like sorcerers, um, like, like priests that would do all the, the rituals and all the rites. So think like super demonic Hindu temple kind of priests. And so they're coming in, and wouldn't you know, their staffs can do the exact same thing. And they do it, it says, by secret arts. Now, some people who have a hard time believing in the supernatural think, these guys were probably snake charmers, and so they just did this thing where you pinch this nerve behind their neck, and they go paralyzed, and then you kind of shake them out, and all of a sudden the snakes can go. So they actually just walked in there with paralyzed snakes, and they were like, all right, we can do this too. And then they shook them out, right? But that's not what the text says. It says that by their secret arts, okay? So you need to see here the power of Satan and the power of the demonic is no joke. Uh, he can work power, powerful miracles and wonders that, that would, if possible, lead away even the elect. That he, he works with supernatural power, not like you. He's not limited by your limitations. Satan is supernatural. He's not God. He's created, but he's supernatural. And so turning a piece of wood into a snake is not hard for him. It's not a problem. And God allows him to do it. And remember, God allows all that he does to demonstrate his glory. So you would just think, like we do all the time when we question God's wisdom or his ways, why would God allow them to do this? Oh, you're trying to demonstrate your power and your authority. You're in the middle of mocking Pharaoh, and then you let them do the exact same thing? And that's when we get to the second part, right? God's demonstrating his glory, his power over the evil one in turning the staff into a snake, but also as Aaron's staff swallows up the other staffs. This is completely incredible. So they think, all right, we got one up on them. They think this is some kind of parlor trick. We got this too. And then Aaron's snake proceeds to eat the snakes of the Egyptians. And what is particularly uh, striking about this is that the Egyptians believed that by swallowing something, you could acquire its power. And so... God is demonstrating, I am swallowing up your power, your arts, the things that you have by demonic power, I'm swallowing them whole, and I am the greatest power, the greatest authority. There is no one to his right or to his left. He is glorious above all other gods. And the other lowercase g gods, the demons, are real and he is glorious above them. It's not hard for them. It's like the, the demons coming up. I tell my boys this all the time. When they get scared or we get intimidated by something demonic that you see, and you say, all right, well, anytime we see demons interacting with Jesus in the New Testament, what do you see? Them groveling in fear, begging, pleading, him looking at them like these millions of ladybugs in my house that you're just like, because he's annoyed by them. He's like, sure, you can go over here. So that, that is what is happening here. Very supernatural, demonic activity that is too much for you, would enslave you, would, would bind you, would hold you captive to 
your sin. You, you know the power of sin and of the demonic attacks that come against you. And it is no match for King Jesus and his power and his authority. And significant too from this text is that the only other place that this word for swallow is used in Exodus is when the sea swallows up the armies of Egypt on their way out as they're pursuing Israel and God swallows up the forces of Pharaoh in final deliverance of his people. And so this text truly is serving as kind of a microcosm or a prologue of all the battles to come. You're going to see God demonstrating his power and his authority in a convincing way and him hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh not responding to it and Moses and Aaron being obedient anyways in the midst of all of it and God demonstrating his power and his authority above the gods of Egypt. So all of this account <clears throat> demonstrates that God will be glorified either in the humble repentance of his people or in his judgments against those who reject him. So what do we do with that today? In the same way, so we're going to roll up all these now for us. In the same way that Moses was God to Pharaoh. He was partially so. He represented God and was functionally God to Pharaoh. But we can't help but think of Jesus who was truly God and truly man who would come to restore the image of God and man so that what sin marred and we could never be a picture of God in the world or fulfill our God-given mandate to image God to the world around us, Christ Jesus bought and has given in restoration to his people so that we would now live being conformed to the image of Christ, truly imaging Christ to the world. And so in a very real way, in your world, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with the people that God has surrounded only you with, you are Christ to them. You are, for some of them, the only Christ that they will ever see. For some people, the first Christian in truth that they've ever known. So are you imaging Christ to the world around you? And we do that by doing what Moses and Aaron did, which is to say, all right, he uses really weak people, but who are renewed for the sake of his glory so that he alone gets the power, the glory and the honor for it. And he works in us. He takes us from being sin laden and excuse making. And he conforms us to the image of Christ, whose image he's restored to us so that we might go forth and proclaim and obey all that he's commanded us in the midst of, of much opposition, in the midst of real demonic opposition. Not opposition that is not real. Uh, it's not just in your head, right? But Moses' excuse was, well, Pharaoh won't listen to me. But the ironic part about that is God has already told him that. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. So there's a lot of times that our excuse-making or disobedience are tied to things that Jesus already promised would happen to us. Well, I would, but I'm not going to have the words to say. Well, I'm going to give you the words to say in that hour, okay? Um, I'm shy and I'm, I, I will be with your mouth. Who made your mouth? Okay, but they're not going to believe me. Yeah, I already told you that. They actually are going to hate you. And they can't hate you. They hated me. 
but I want you to come to me outside the gate and bear my reproach. Well, God, I just, and, and on and on we go. But what's happening over time is God is not done with you. God is committed to sanctifying you and renewing you and restoring the image of Christ to you so that with greater faithfulness, you can be a better image of Christ to the world around you next time. And he is finishing the work that he has started in you. Now, Pharaoh and all of Egypt were a picture of those that we studied about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, those who were perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And Paul's exhortation to God's people in 2 Thessalonians is that the people that are chosen by him for sanctification and for belief in the truth is that they would stand firm in the Lord. That they would stand firm and hold on. And he says the same to Timothy in his second letter to him. And he uses these same priests of Egypt as the examples of the opposition that Timothy would encounter or that we encounter today. So I want you to turn with me in our closing moments of this message to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Most of what I'm going to do in the balance of our time together is read this text to you, but I want you to see, all right, if we're, if we're looking at the same problem that Moses experienced in our text, and Paul uses that problem to illustrate a problem that we experience today, then what did Paul say about how we should live if we're going to imitate the example of Moses and Aaron? So Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self and lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. An apt description. Now, right before this, he's already said, there are people who are held captive by the devil to do his will, and you need to correct your opponents with gentleness if God might be pleased to lead them to repentance and have them escape the snare of the devil who had held them captive to do his will. So that is what is happening right here. These are people who are being held captive by the devil to do his will, and you can see the fruit of that coming out right here. In our, our call, if they are the captives, it's to call them out and to correct them with gentleness and hold forth the truth to them, whatever the cost to ourselves as we speak the truth in love. But listen to this. Then there are others who, having the appearance of godliness but deny its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Okay, so here's these Egyptian priests. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So specifically, these Egyptian priests represent here those who have the form of godliness. They profess Christ while embracing the gods of the world. Their, their theology has been intermixed with the sin that is in the world, with 
the tolerance for unrighteousness that is in the world, and we are charged avoid such people. They are uh, corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, and they are really opposing the truth. And the example that Paul gives to a opposition to the truth that we see all around us in the world today are these Egyptian priests who opposed Moses in the midst of this prologue to the fight that God is setting up. So in verse 9, he says, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as it was that of those two men. So quick, quick insert, and I want to read the rest of the text. You need to remember this, that in the midst of God's salvation, he is working all things for the sake of his glory. And so he is allowing days like this. Jesus could have established his kingdom immediately. When he died on the cross, he walked out of the grave. It could have been over. But instead, he ascends to heaven and he has continued to build his kingdom and invite you into it. If he had ended his kingdom 100 years ago, you would not exist and you wouldn't have the opportunity to spend forever worshiping God and enjoying him. And so God's patience and his mercy means salvation for his people. And there are many in the midst of that that rise up against Jesus. They're deceived and they're being deceivers. And many profess Christ and look like they claim him on the outside, but inside they do not know him. And so how should you live in the midst of such opposition like what Moses faced? Verse 10, you who, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God in his providence, in his passion for his glory is allowing for, verse one, times of difficulty. Verse two, counterfeits. Verse eight, opposition to you and to the truth. Verse 13, evil people and imposters going on from bad to worse. They're deceived and they're being deceivers. But as for you, continue, continue, stand firm, hold fast. And he says, firmly believe these sacred writings again. It's this context that this famed verses about all scripture being inspired by God and it's profitable so that as you hold forth the truth of God's world to a wicked and unbelieving generation who is refusing to love the truth and so be saved, it is profitable for that correction with gentleness. It's profitable for rebuking and reproving those who claim Christ but 
are living outside the bounds of God's word. And I, 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 so I'm, I'm ending here. I'm exhorting us to be reminded in the midst of all the wickedness of the world around us, all those who claim God, to know that in the midst of God not acting like you think he ought to act or in the timing that he ought to act, for just in general have this umbrella, this truth of your life, that God is actively working in your life for his glory. He is working so that you could know him and worship him and prize him as you ought so that you might truly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But just like he could have saved Israel without such a powerful demonstration of his love and his glory and his power, he could save you without all the things that you think are superfluous on the road to salvation. All the things that you think, well, God, why are you allowing all this? Why this way? But he is acting for the sake of his glory. And so in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the opposition to the truth, image Christ to the world around you. Have his word dwelling in you richly so that you can be firmly, stand firm in what you have believed and that you might overflow with the truth to the world around you proclaiming and obeying all that God has commanded. And soon, soon, he will swallow up death forever. Just like he swallowed up the snakes of Egypt and just like he swallowed up those who were pursuing his people in the Exodus. And so I wanna leave you with this as a kind of closing and benediction to this message. Isaiah 25, verse eight and nine. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We will say it in truth on that day. May you find us glad and rejoicing in his salvation while we wait, faithfully imaging Christ to the world, faithfully proclaiming him and obeying him, even as we stand firm in the midst of opposition to the truth. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your passion, for your glory. Thank you that you have blotted out our sins for your name's sake, that you have forgiven us for your name's sake, that you have adopted us as your children for your name's sake, all so that we might know and love and treasure you according to the worship that is due you. Father, we thank you for your perfect patience with us, that you're not finished with us, that you have resolved to save us to the uttermost and that you will complete the work that you've begun in us, in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that we as your church would be acquainted with the scriptures, not casual acquaintances, but filled richly with the word of Christ and that 
you, Lord Jesus, might overflow us to the world around us and that they might be able to look through us and see you, your life, your righteousness overflowing us as we proclaim you and hold fast to your truth. Lord, please make us as a church the faithful witness that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.